Why was 1956 such a pivotal year in the Soviet Union? How did it help set the course of the half-past century of Russian history? Joining us on this edition of the Nixon Now podcast to answer these questions is Kathleen Smith. Dr. Smith is professor of teaching at the Georgetown University Wash School of Foreign Service. Her area of expertise is issues of memory and history of politics of Russia. She's the author of a new book, Moscow 1956, The Silent Spring. Uh, Dr. Smith, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Why did you decide to write this book? Well, uh, I've been studying uh, Russia for rather a long time. Uh, My training is in political science, but I was always interested in questions about how Russians, uh, or Soviets as they were when I started studying the area, how their history, especially their memory of these traumatic events of the 20th century, shaped their attitudes. Uh, And so I decided that in the current political situation in Russia, where there is less transparency, less possibility to do the kind of field research that interests me, that the time had come to do a purely historical topic, but one that I thought would still have a lot of resonance. And so the question for me was, how did this turning point year in which we had a first experiment with uh, strong reformist tendencies from within the country, how did that play out and how did people remember that particular year? And I think that I started too with a sense of a puzzle that if you said to an American of a certain age, oh, what do you know about the Soviet Union in 1956, probably the answer would be, oh, that's when the Soviets invaded Hungary. If you asked a Russian person of a certain age, they would remember Khrushchev's secret speech and this wave of cultural openness and political optimism that followed it. So I thought, here's another area where you know, Russians and Americans uh, could look back at it at the same time in history, but from really different perspectives. And it would be interesting for a Western audience to explore why that year was more than just uh, the invasion in, in, into Hungary. Uh, can you describe um, some of the research that went into this book? Sure. Well, uh, there are some very famous aspects of uh, Russian history in 1956 that have been written about before Khrushchev's secret speech is one of them. This has long been an object of fascination in the East and in the West. This is when Khrushchev uh, talks to a closed gathering of the Communist Party Congress, where there are bigwigs and party functionaries and delegates from all over the Soviet Union. And he, in a multi-hour speech, uh, denounces Stalin for his repressions against innocent people, for his one-man rule over the Soviet Union instead of uh, collective leadership. So this speech has been studied a lot. Of course, it's one of the bookends to my study. But what I really wanted to do was to try and go beyond the main event and see how it, news of it spread throughout the Soviet Union, how it influenced people. Uh, and to do that, I relied on a variety of sources, ranging from archival materials that used to be classified but now are open uh, to interviews, to you know, kind of tracking down interesting people 
who had a role either in explaining the secret speech to people or who were listeners to the secret speech. Uh, and then my book unfolds as sort of a month-by-month story of this year, and many of the chapters have to do with sort of the slow time release, you know, detonation of this, of this bomb that Khrushchev threw out there. Uh, but each case study, each chapter has sort of a different uh, theme to it and uh, required a different uh, sort of research puzzle to figure out. This book covers a key area, a key period of transition between Soviet leader Joseph Stalin and the new Soviet leader uh, Nikita Khrushchev. Could you just, I want to start off by asking um, sort of the transition between these two periods of time. By uh, first asking, what what was Stalinism? Could you describe what that ideology, that governing ideology, entailed? Well, um, it's interesting. Khrushchev hated the word Stalinism <laughs> because he saw the Soviet Union as a country that was living by Marxist-Leninist ideology, uh, and he saw the word Stalinism as sort of a Western attempt to suggest that the Soviets had abandoned communism at some, at some point. So Khrushchev did not believe that. He thought that despite the things that went wrong under Stalin, that the Soviet Union you know, remained this, this tremendous revolutionary force. That said, uh, Stalinism in practice did uh, mean that we had what the Soviets called uh, a cult of personality, where one man came to symbolize the ruling party, uh, and this, of course, is Joseph Stalin. And it's really emblematic of a shift away from a more disorganized and and democratic is too strong of a word, but a, a party in which there was room for disagreement on the inside, that is, party members could disagree and debate with each other, uh, under Lenin, towards a system in which uh, any divergence, real or unintentional, from the party line, and the party line is what's voiced by Stalin and uh, the subordinate institutions to him, uh, became really dangerous. And so I argue that part of Khrushchev's reform is a return, at least he intends it to be a return of sorts, to a more open period in which constructive criticism, at least, is welcome. Uh, And in practice, he finds that to be very difficult. And Soviet leaders are not really experts at taking feedback, I think it's fair to say. Could you you describe um, who who was uh, Nikita Khrushchev? Could you describe his rise to power? And um, you, you touched a little bit upon what he hoped to do for the Soviet Union, but what, what was, um, you know, what was the direction and character he wanted to take the country? Yeah. Well, um, there's a wonderful biography of Nikita Khrushchev by William Taubman that I recommend to everyone. Uh, that said, I think that uh, Taubman convinces me that Khrushchev is really a representative of an entire sort of epoch in the Soviet Union in that he goes from a very underprivileged background. He's born into a peasant family. Uh, He is only somewhat literate. He has an incomplete education. Um, 
But he has this tremendous rise from being someone who was sort of a local uh, local organizer, uh, a local party person, all the way up to being the general secretary of the Soviet Union. And in many ways, his trajectory shows uh, the possibilities for advancement under the Soviet regime. That is, this is a regime that wanted to throw out the old elite and bring in workers and peasants uh, and took many steps to promote people who were loyal, energetic, uh, and who had certain talents. And Khrushchev, much as he was not a very, you know, let's say, not a person with a lot of book learning, is an incredible orator. He's a tremendous manager uh, and in many ways, I would say, an, an innate politician. That is, he's very good at reading people and reading situations. And, and you had to be to survive under Stalin, right? Um, so his own life, and I tell a little bit of that in the first chapter of the book, uh, really you know, encompasses this generation of people who are swept up by the revolution and sort of put themselves on the coattails of Soviet power and rise through the system. That said, when Khrushchev does uh, have his chance as uh, general secretary of the party, uh, and this is a position that he consolidates not immediately after Stalin's death, but by the spring of 1956, he's, he's fairly well uh, positioned as sort of first among equals in this group of top party leaders in uh, the presidium, sometimes called the Politburo, but in this time period, they call it the presidium. You had mentioned so, the... I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. I'm just going to say you, you had mentioned the um, earlier the secret speech of February 25th, 1956, um, and some of the some of the research that you put into that. What was the what was the impact of of this speech? Yeah. So Khrushchev really has to work to convince these other top party members that this is something that ought to be done, uh, and Khrushchev himself is motivated in part by uh, some party members who were purged under Stalin, who survived the gulag, and who essentially say to him, if you don't face up to this now, what will you say in the future if someone comes to you and says, oh, you knew the truth about Stalin, but, you know, why, why after Stalin's death, you know, did you not take this step? So Khrushchev, uh, I think believes that if the party can tell uh, at least a limited version of the truth about uh, some of the terrible things that happened under Stalin, that the party itself will be rejuvenated and will be able to go forward politically, uh, gathering steam, gathering popularity, and so forth. That said, um, the news to people especially young people who have grown up with this cult of Stalin to find out that now they're supposed to believe that, that Stalin ignored the pleas of loyal party members who are being tortured in the basements of the NKVD prisons and so forth is pretty devastating. Uh, and certainly not everyone who hears this thinks, oh, well, this is important. We've really learned something. We should change the system. A lot of people hear it and think, who is this guy Khrushchev, you know, this country bumpkin 
to sort of be spitting on the grave of the great Stalin. Uh, so the reaction is, is definitely a mixed one. But it's somewhat muted by the fact that uh, the speech is not published. So in the West, we call it the secret speech. I argue that it was never a really good secret because once Khrushchev makes it, uh, he pushes through this decision that the speech should be read out loud to members of the Communist Party and the Communist Youth League across the entirety of the Soviet Union. So they print up this little red booklet with the speech that's marked, you know, top secret, you know, must be returned after, you know, so many days. Uh, and they task party members with going out, convening these meetings and reading the speech. Uh, and in my book, I talk about how Gorbachev was one of these people. He was a young Komsomol bureaucrat, and he tramped across uh, the agricultural province in which he lived, essentially pretending to be Khrushchev and reading this out to, you know, peasants and workers, uh, and no doubt hearing a lot of questions that he wasn't particularly equipped to answer. But I think for Gorbachev, at least, the powerful impact of the speech was that he had to really absorb this message that terrible mistakes had happened and that the solution was to go back to Leninism. I think that was the message that Khrushchev wished people would get out of the speech anyway. You write that Khrushchev's leadership marked a change uh, in government, especially government that was more transparent, responsive, um, but that he didn't expect a push for freedom from younger people um, uh, during his during his reign. Um, how would how do how would he how did he respond to that? Yeah, so uh, I have to admit that when I set out to write this book, I didn't realize initially how much attention I was going to give to the younger generation. But I found that as I wrote about the speech and its impact, about the return of people from the gulag, about the possibilities that were opened up for free speech, I found that young people were really key in combining a certain naive optimism with Khrushchev's message. That is, they had grown up totally cut off from the outside world, but with a very consistent moral message that a good person sacrificed for the country, served other people, uh, was willing to, you know, work hard for, uh, you know, a small income in the name, right, of future generations. So this generation kind of combines with Khrushchev's own enthusiasm. Uh, and Khrushchev's enthusiasm was not just about desalinization. He had many other projects up his sleeve, uh, including most famously that he wanted to plant corn uh, everywhere based on his experience uh, with Iowa farmers. Um, he wanted to sow what were called the virgin lands, these uh unplowed regions of Kazakhstan and so forth. Uh, and in many of these enterprises, he kind of lobbied young people and pulled young people into it. So that's sort of the positive side. Now, the other side is that young people with these high principles sometimes are using their principles as a measuring stick. And when they look at Khrushchev and the state and this very you know, moderate level of reform, they thought that Khrushchev fell short. 
So I write about uh, students and especially this one guy with the great uh, name of Revolt, uh, Pimenov. And Pimenov hears the secret speech and he thinks, well, this is a good step forward, but this is kind of like the cult of personality in reverse. Before we said Stalin was responsible for everything, everything was wonderful. And now you're telling us everything was terrible, but still only Stalin is responsible. What about the rest of the party? You know, what about you, Nikita Khrushchev? Where were you? And those are the kinds of questions that Khrushchev really can't tolerate, both for his own political career, uh, but also because it suggests that the system needs not a little bit of reform, but, you know, a top-to-bottom reassessment. Uh, and that, that does not match his views. You you talk about this um, process of de-Stalinization. Could you could you give a little more detail to this, um, especially especially the dismantling of the uh, of the uh, gulags? Who who exactly were uh, Stalin's uh, Stalin's victims? Yes. Um, so uh, Stalin's victims is. Uh, in many ways, an enormous category, because uh, when you look at the sweep of history that Stalin's almost 30 years encompasses, uh, it could include everyone from uh, people who were tossed out of their uh, farms under decollectivization. These were so-called wealthy peasants who were considered not to be you know, good members of the collective farm and who were sent into exile or imprisoned or sometimes executed uh, through the what's called in the West the Great Terror. These are the years 1937, 1938, when there are many arrests, also many executions. Uh, often this concerned the party elite, but not just the party elite. That cultural intelligentsia was very affected by this. Uh, nationalities were affected. So Poles, people of German descent, uh, people of different ethnic groups inside the Soviet Union often were caught up in these fabricated group cases. There's sort of a spy mania that swept through the Soviet Union in this period. Uh, there were repressions even during the war. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously is someone who is arrested as a soldier at the front because of some incautious correspondence that he exchanged with a friend that was deemed to be anti-Soviet. Uh, in the late Stalin period, in the post-war years, there was a big anti-Semitic uh, turn in the purges. There's the famous doctor's plot where uh, medical professionals, mostly of Jewish uh, origin, are arrested and accused falsely of poisoning top Soviet leaders. This actually is one of the incidents that Khrushchev writes about in his own memoirs, where he talks about uh, he's fallen ill and he calls his doctor, and he's so touched by the care that he gets from this elderly Jewish physician, and yet he knows, because he's already seen some of the paperwork, that this person is going to soon be arrested and be accused of being a poisoner. Now, obviously, Khrushchev doesn't believe he's a poisoner. He wouldn't call him you know, <laughs> to to check him out when he was when he was ill. Um, but it's 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 sort of like a machine that once launched, you know, knocked down huge swaths of people. 
But for the purposes of desalinization, I would just mention that, especially in the 1930s, many of the victims of Stalin's repressions were party members, and some of these people remained quite loyal to the regime. They thought that their arrests were a mistake. They weren't so sure about everybody else. Uh, and they fully believed still that the Communist Party and the revolution were going to succeed. And one of the chapters in my book, I look at the role of these old Bolsheviks, early members of the Communist Party, in helping to dismantle some of their oppressive practices and to rehabilitate people like themselves, people who were loyal party members who had suffered from the purges. And for me, that was an interesting and unknown side of the the story of destalinization. I think one that has not previously gotten that much attention. Uh, turning outward to foreign policy, uh, can you give us an idea of what Khrushchev's foreign policy looked like? It, it seems to me that there's a apparent contradiction. We see the Cuban Missile Crisis and the building of the Berlin Wall. Um, we also see the Hungarian. Uh, uprising of 1956. I'm reminded of when uh, Vice President Nixon visited uh, uh, Hungary that same year. Um, but you say there was a partial opening to the West. Was Khrushchev also pursuing more of a detente policy? Yes, I think that he was. But I should say first that I, I like how you talk about the contradictions, because I think that it's really in Khrushchev's foreign policies where we see what a bundle of internal contradictions the man himself was, right? Here's somebody who, on the one hand, had been loyal to Stalin and praised Stalin and yet denounced Stalin. Uh, here's someone who would rage against the West, you know, try and bully Kennedy, Eisenhower, all these leaders that he crossed paths with, and who was also profoundly insecure, uh, about himself and about how he would be treated by the West. So I think that over the whole stretch of his period as general secretary, his foreign policy is very stormy and very irregular, uh, and that partly is a reflection of his personality. What was interesting for me in looking specifically at 1956 was how this was a year in which I think Khrushchev was trying to explore this possibility of better relations with the West. And in this, he was also exercising his own curiosity about the West. Because under Stalin, Khrushchev had not really been allowed to travel abroad, to have much contact with foreigners. Uh, he was sometimes invited to these receptions where Stalin would be talking with foreign leaders. But like a child, his role was to sit there and be quiet, right? He could listen, but he wasn't expected to participate. Uh, and it's really only in 1954 um, that Khrushchev has a chance to start to have a foreign policy. Um, so I write in 1956 about how he takes this long visit to the United Kingdom. And this is his first uh, sort of serious, in-depth uh, chance to visit the West. Now, I think he would have liked to visit America immediately thereafter, but he didn't have an invitation uh, at that point uh, uh, from Eisenhower. But I think we can look at his experience in Britain and the way he behaved himself there as a sign of his underlying desire to improve relations, but also these very strong limitations. 
So he goes to Britain and he kind of swings back and forth between trying to be very friendly and looking for signs that he's getting a warm reception and being extremely nasty and even rude. You know, so he famously uh, hectors the wife of a British politician at dinner that, yes, we do have missiles and our missiles could, you know, come over here and, and, and blow you up any minute. Uh, so he's not really diplomatic in the sense that we would we would think of a you know a professional politician as being, but um, he is kind of on this cusp of opening up to the West, but being afraid of what the reaction will be. And in my book, I cite uh, his own stories from his memoirs, where he talks about Stalin always threatening the other members of the presidium that when I'm gone. You won't know what to do. You'll be like blind kittens. The West will take advantage of you. So in other words, he's kind of trained up to be afraid of failure. Uh, and so his travel to the West is a moment in which he's very enthusiastic and curious, but also very frightened, frightened of things going wrong, frightened of making a bad impression. Final question. In in recent years, um, Putin's Russia has seemed to give Stalinism some positive revisionist history. Um, how does that leave uh, Khrushchev's legacy and the legacy of 1956? You know, that's a really good question. I think that um, really almost from the very moment that Khrushchev made the secret speech uh, and denounced Stalin, um, there's been a struggle uh, among those who want to defend their country, who feel patriotic about the Soviet Union, about now about Russia, to try and evaluate Stalin's place. Uh, and by the end of 1956, after uh, this unrest in Poland and Hungary, this uh, decision that Khrushchev makes to intervene with force uh, in Hungary, which is a sign of a failure, I think, on his part, that he felt that he had to take this, this step. Um, he really backpedals a bit on Stalin uh, and starts to say things to the, you know, to the effect that, well, you know, Stalin was a strong leader and Stalin was a strong communist and that's what we admire in people. Now, Vladimir Putin is no communist, uh, and he's not going to say, oh, we need to, we need to keep the memory of Stalin alive for the sake of communism. But he does prefer to emphasize the way in which Russia, or the Soviet Union, now Russia again, how this country was a strong, powerful force in the international arena, and that it was uh, a country that's ever becoming more economically developed and modernized and so forth. So you can pull out strands from the Stalinist period that he oversaw the creation of heavy industry, that he was the leader during victory in World War II, and present those as genuine achievements. Now, if you're a historian, you can make a more nuanced presentation. You can say these were achievements of the Soviet Union, which consisted of, right, millions of people, some leadership of the Communist Party, some leadership by Stalin. Uh, and you can debate things such as, you know, would World War II have been won with fewer 
casualties had, uh, you know, someone else been in charge and not Stalin, who had already purged uh, the, the army leadership before that. Um, so I think that when Putin and current politicians today in Russia speak positively of Stalin or the Stalin era, and I would say Putin is very cautious about this. I mean, under, under his leadership, there are more efforts today to glorify Stalin. But he personally, uh, I wouldn't say, has made a big line in glorifying Stalin. But, right, he is a patriot. And so things like the memory of World War II are extremely important for him. The memory of Khrushchev and the secret speech? Not so much so. I mean, that, for him, was a very complicated time. Uh, he probably looks back at that time and would focus more on, uh, you know, the disarray in the socialist alliance uh, and Khrushchev's inconsistent foreign policy. Uh, but for many cultural and intellectual figures, they look back at 1956 and say, here's a time when people were pushing to talk about what went wrong, to really think about mistakes that had been made in the national history and take lessons from that. And arguably today, you still hear that message that there are many people who want to talk about Soviet history in an exploratory way to figure out, you know, how is it that human rights abuses could be so widespread? You know, what, what lesson could we take from that for the present day? That's not Putin's aim, uh, but there certainly are contemporary people in Russia today who see Khrushchev not as a god, not like Stalin. You know, they see him sort of, you know, warts and all, but who are interested in reform as a complicated and important process. Thank you, Kathleen Smith, for your time. The book is Moscow 1956, The Silent Spring. Thank you.